Hello, friends, and welcome to the Sermons Podcast of Christ Church at Grove Farm. One of our goals here at CCGF is to help you take your next step toward Jesus and the person God designed you to be. We hope our sermons help you to take that next step. If you would like more information about the community here at Christ Church at Grove Farm, or if you would like to contact us, you can do all of that and more on our website, which is ccgf.org. And to get an even further taste of who we are, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Now, here is this week's message, Grace and Peace to You. Well, there's a literary device known as a fatal flaw. Some might know it as a tragic flaw. Let me show you the definition of a fatal flaw. A fatal flaw is the personality trait of a character that leads to his or her demise. That's the fatal flaw. Taking you back to high school English class this morning. You know, some examples from literature of fatal flaws, we can go to Aesop's Fables. In Aesop's Fables, of course, you have the tortoise and the hare, and the hare's fatal flaw was his arrogance. That's why he lost the race to the tortoise. Or if you go to William Shakespeare and Hamlet, the fatal flaw of, of Hamlet was his indecision. Reflected in the famous quote, to be or not to be. That was his fatal flaw, Hamlet, indecision. In the Bible, we see fatal flaws in in several of the people that we learn about in the scriptures. Samson is one that comes to mind right away. Samson, of course, uh, was filled with lust. And that was ultimately Samson's demise with Delilah was, was that lust. That was his fatal flaw. Samson reminds us. That, that fatal flaws aren't limited to just literature. I mean, real people have fatal flaws. I got some examples here written down of, of some fatal flaws, fatal flaws, just a few here. Ambition, apathy, dishonesty, gluttony, greed, impulsiveness, narcissism, perfectionism, resentment. We could go on and on and on. All this kind of makes me think, do I have a fatal flaw? This could be a great lunchtime discussion today. What fun, right? To talk about one another's fatal flaws. I'm sure my wife and children will have lots of examples from my life of fatal flaws. Jesus addresses this idea of fatal flaws in the Gospel of Luke. We're going to look there today. Pastor Barry just read to you from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18. If you've got your Bible open in your lap, that's a great place for it to be this morning. We're going to be in the Word. You might have it on your iPad or on your phone. In any event, let's open up God's Word and take a look at this passage and what Jesus has to say about these fatal flaws. Picking up in chapter 18 of Luke's Gospel with verse 9, the Scripture says, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. So we're clued into who the audience is. And if you're someone who's familiar with the Bible, if, if you're a person who's been around the church, you might jump to the conclusion that this parable is being addressed to the Pharisees. I mean, the Pharisees are the people that Jesus was often in conflict with, that he was having debates with. And if you think it's the Pharisees, You're actually wrong because the audience of this parable isn't the Pharisees. We're going to talk about them in a moment. No, it's actually the disciples. 
if you, if you go back to the very beginning of chapter 18, you'll see that Jesus is gathered with his disciples. And this parable that he's telling is an extension of that teaching time. I think it's really interesting. And, and what is he pointing out to his disciples? Well, we see it right here. He's pointing out that there were some of them who had a confidence about, that was born of their own righteousness and that some of them looked down on other people. And so there's a really important thing here that we have to get out there as we take a look at this passage, and that's this. Jesus' point isn't to identify a culprit. He's not here to, to pick on the Pharisees. But rather, he's here to point out a fatal flaw that generates practices and perceptions and attitudes that are contrary, that are in opposition to the kingdom of God. So that's what we're set with. Let's take a look at the parable. Continuing in verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like the other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. So here we are, we're introduced to the very first character in this parable, and it's a Pharisee. Now, who are the Pharisees? The Pharisees are the Jewish religious leaders. And, and they were people who were separatists. Actually, the, the, the root of the Hebrew word from where Pharisee is derived comes from the word separate in Hebrew or to detach. And that's exactly what the, the Pharisees were seeking to do, to separate themselves from other people. I mean, they were separating themselves from people who interpreted the law, the Jewish law, differently than they did. They were separating themselves from the common people, both non-Jews and Jews. The Pharisees were separating themselves, detaching themselves from, from people uh, of political affiliation. They were all about separation. But in fairness, we have to point this out. We learn that this Pharisee is a person who prays, fasts, and tithes. I mean, these are, these are core disciplines. These are fundamentals of the Christian life even still today. Ask any pastor if they would like to have more people in their congregation who pray, who tithe, who fast. And we'd say, yes, in fact, we sign those people up to be the leaders of the church. So in fairness, again, this, this Pharisee has got some things right. There is scriptural, scriptural warrant to be a person who prays and fasts and tithes. But we find himself, we find him rather, distancing himself, separating himself. Not just physically, by the way. Yes, he physically distanced himself. I'm not sure if it was six feet or not. Someone's mama just said, oh, I told you social distancing was in the Bible. We're not sure if it was six feet. And he was social distancing himself, certainly, from the others in the temple. But he wasn't just doing that. He was spiritually distancing himself. You see, he was, he was distancing himself from those who didn't take the Torah, the, the Hebrew law, as seriously as he does. You know, there's this bit in here about tithing. We see him praying. And then he says this. He says, and I fast twice a week. Well, that was up and above what the Jewish law required of a faithful person. 
And so there's this, there's this standard that the Pharisees have brought that's actually beyond what God demands of people. And what do they use that for? To spiritually distance themselves from other people. Now this is an example of cultural elitism. Cultural elitism. Or maybe even spiritual elitism. This idea that because I do this, because I behave this way or believe this way, I am, I am superior than you. I'm better than you. I look down on you. That's what this parable is about. You know, looking down on someone's way of life isn't anything new. I read an article headline in preparation of this week that said this. New study shows that snobbery is alive and well. We see all kinds of snobbery, don't we, on social media. But it's not just in social media. I mean, I would argue that we have this cultural elitism, this spiritual elitism in the church worldwide today. I mean, think about it in worship. There are those people who say, oh, we, when we worship, we raise our hands. And we worship in this way. And somehow that causes them to look down at other people. And then there are other churches who say, no, no, in our church we take notes. We take notes. We're very intellectual. What's the answer? You know, I love it, by the way, that here at Christ Church at Grove Farm, that we actually worship in both ways. We have a modern worship service where, yes, people raise their hands. But not only people raise their hands there, they raise their hands in our blended service, in our more traditional service. And yeah, we take notes too. We can engage people in multiple ways. There doesn't need to be this sense of cultural or spiritual elitism that we see reflected in the story or the person of this Pharisee. But it doesn't end there. You see, this Pharisee, there's really one more important thing to point out about this character. He doesn't proclaim his greatness before others. Instead, he prays and speaks to God. Listen, the Lord knows every person's heart, every single person's heart. The Lord knows secrets of the heart. Let me read to you from, from 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. Listen to what the New Testament says. It says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is is not in us. You know, your fatal flaw, I asked you earlier if you had a fatal flaw, your fatal flaw could be that you think that you can hide from the God who knows the secrets of the heart. That could be your fatal flaw this morning. Let's continue looking at this passage. Going now to, to verse 13, we read about the next character. But the tax collector, stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. So our second character, of course, is this tax collector. And the tax collectors, of course, gathered taxes from the people. Now often, they bought their way into office. And once they paid their way into office, they robbed and extorted money from people. They got rich out of other people's pockets. And so therefore, they were despised in the culture. Totally despised people. And we see this guy also practicing social distancing. He distanced himself, but for a totally different reason. He was standing apart, not so that he could, could be superior or separated from people he looked down upon, but rather he believed that he had no place among the others. 
He, he thought that, that it would be wrong for him to try to attempt to seize a place by asserting his own honor. And so he stood in humility away from the others. And then I love this. Without words, what does he do? He beats his chest and he averts his eyes. And, and, and get this right. This, this isn't a beating of the chest like an athlete. I remember Jerome Bettis, when he would get a first down, would get up and spike the ball and he beat his chest and the crowd would roar. This isn't that kind of beating of the chest. This is the beating of the chest that says, woe is me. Woe is me. You know, it's interesting. If you ever find yourself in a place where you're not sure if you can come up with the words to come before God and come clean before him and repent, it might not require words at all. We see that reflected. The, the writer took great pains to outline for us the physical posture of this person. I love that without words. Here's, here's the thing, though, about this tax collector that we see. Fatal flaws come to light through humility. You want to learn what your fatal flaw is? Humble yourself. That's what happened with this tax collector. Now, let's go to the end of this parable. Verse 14. Jesus says, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. You know, there's this interesting dynamic in the Gospels where the bad guys are saved in the end, and the good guys are lost. I mean, we see that in the prodigal son, and we certainly see it here in this parable. The bad guy is saved. The good guy is lost. So what's, that, what's that about? Well, we see what it's about in this passage, and there's a key word. It says that this man, the tax collector, went home justified. This is a really important word for us in this passage. Let's talk about what it means to be justified. I have a definition for you. To be justified is to be declared righteous by God. That's what it means. To be justified means to be declared righteous by God. Virtuous, very good, excellent by God in his courtroom. And so this tax collector was declared righteous. He was declared virtuous by Jesus, by God in this passage. But the Pharisee wasn't. He's the other one. The one who was the good guy is lost in the end. Well, why is that? Well, the Pharisee was trusting in the wrong thing. Let's talk about the Pharisee's fatal flaw. The Pharisee's fatal flaw, fatal flaw was that he trusted in his righteousness for justification. He wasn't trusting in, in, in something bigger than him. He was leaning on himself. This is really, really important. We are not justified by the righteousness that Christ works in us. Let me explain this. You see, when a person, when a, when a person comes to faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit fills us. And the Holy Spirit does a work in us, sanctifies us makes us new. And things like this start to happen in our lives. We become people who give and who pray, people who fast, people who serve the church. We become people who do good deeds. You, you may even have right theology. And all those are, are good things, much like the Pharisees giving 
and fasting and praying were good things. But we're not justified by the righteousness that Christ works in us. No. We are justified by the righteousness that Christ is for us. That's what this parable is pointing out to us. Listen, Jesus Christ, who went to the cross and died a horrific death, his body broken, his blood poured out, his life given. Jesus is the one who died in our place. He took the fatal blow. And so we are justified by the righteousness that Jesus is for us. Do you see the difference? The Pharisee didn't, and that was his fatal law. So how about you? I asked you a question earlier. How about you? Do you have a fatal flaw? The tax collector had a fatal flaw. It was greed. The tax collectors were in general known as greedy people. But something miraculous happened in his life, and it's reflected in this parable. I want to I read to you a, a verse. Because listen, theologically, we all have a fatal flaw. The answer to the question, do you have a fatal flaw? Do I have a fatal flaw? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. Listen to what Romans 6.23 says. Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen, we all have a fatal flaw. We all have something in us, we're born with it, that will lead ultimately to our demise. Just like Hamlet, just like Samson. We all have a fatal flaw, but this is the incredible news. The righteousness of God through Jesus Christ overrides fatal flaws. The righteousness of Jesus Christ overrides our fatal flaws. That's what we see in the life of this tax collector. And it's possible for you and me. You know, we're in this Lenten season. We're in a very unusual time in the history of our world. Lent, in the midst of all this, is meant to prepare us to experience Jesus in new ways. I want to give you an action step. I want to give you a way that you can experience Jesus. The action step is this. It's the same thing that we see the tax collector do. Beat your chest and avert your eyes. You might do that literally. But but what that's about is acknowledging humility. Acknowledging your shame over your sin. Beat your chest and avert your eyes. And here's a prayer that we all can pray. If you've been following along during the last couple of weeks, you've heard me reference this prayer, and I want to put it on the screen here again today for you. This is known as the Jesus Prayer. And, and the Jesus Prayer has ancient roots. It's been around since at least the 300s, but actually I would argue, and I think you would see this clearly, that it's been around a lot longer than that. You know who, who originated the Jesus Prayer? This tax collector right here. Because Jesus' prayer is, is the same prayer. The Jesus' prayer goes like this. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. You know, I don't know in the midst of all that's happening in the world. 
if there's any greater thing that any of us can do right now, but rather humble ourselves and repent before God. I don't know if there's anything greater than we can do as individuals right now. And there are many things that we can do. We could serve our neighbors. We could read up on all the latest news. And there is goodness in both of those things. Someone asked me today as I was preparing to come up and preach, they sent me a message and said, Preacher, if you were going to preach today, what is it that you would say to people about this pandemic, about what's happening in the world? Well, what this person didn't know is I am preaching today. And, and here is the message that I believe that God's word has for us. This is a timely passage in this sense. Let us not think too highly of ourselves. Let us not look down on other people. But let us all in this time, as individuals, as a church, as a nation, humble ourselves and acknowledge our sin before God. It's called repenting. Acknowledging that, that, that we're wicked sinners. Acknowledging that, that we're shameful in so many ways. Shameful ways that other people can't see, but that God clearly sees. God clearly sees. He knows our hearts. He knows the secrets of the hearts. And trusting that he is good, even though we are shameful, that he is good, and he cherishes us, and he loves us through his son, Jesus Christ, to repent and turn to him. That, I believe, is the most powerful thing that you and I can do in these times. So let me lead you right now. In the Jesus prayer. Jesus prayer again is, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Right where you are, your kitchen table, in your car, in your living room, wherever you find yourself right now, as you're listening to this, would you pray that prayer? You can repeat it several times over in your heart and your mind. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's the prayer of the tax collector. It's a faithful prayer for you and I. Oh yes, Lord, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us, for we are sinners, God. Thank you, Lord, that you are a God who does not despise sinners, but rather, Lord, when we humble ourselves and acknowledge our shame, you are one who receives us enthusiastically and declares us as excellent, declares us very good, declares us righteous, justified because of Jesus and Jesus alone. Lord, we know that you know the secrets of the heart. Lord, you know that we are so prone to look down on other people to think of ourselves too highly. God, we come like this tax collector today. And we beat our chest. And we avert our eyes and we say, oh God, have mercy on us, we're sinners. Lord, uh, I acknowledge that I am fatally flawed. And I believe that my friends who are listening right now and watching would agree with the same. They would say, yeah, I'm fatally flawed. But thank you, Lord, that Jesus and his grace and his mercy overrides 
fatal flaws. I pray, Lord, that those who have prayed your mercy, who have humbled themselves today, would feel your love, would feel, Lord, your acceptance of them, would feel the justification that comes only from you by the power of Jesus. Oh God, we pray all these things in the powerful and matchless name of Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. And together we say, oh Lord, amen.